0: We'll be reading from 1 Peter to eleven through twenty-five. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Submit yourself, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving leaving an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth.
1: Because we got like everyone out sick, so I'm gonna need lots more amens, hallelujahs, glory to God, amens, okay? Oh goodness, we're off to a bad start, people. <laughs> You're like, okay, I got this. Okay, we're gonna try it again. Amen. Okay, okay, there's some hope for us yet. I just had to be patient this morning. That was bad. Oh. <laughs> so we're in week five of our series called Becoming Like Jesus. This is where we're diving deep into each of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. If you've missed any of those, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. They're on our website on YouTube. And these are things that we're talking about because they're ultimately the characteristics and hallmarks of who we are to be in Christ Jesus. And so since we've been talking about this for several weeks, I want to go back and just give us three quick things for us to remember as we dive into. First and foremost, we need to remember that there is a war waging against us. There's a war with the flesh and the spirit at odds. We have the flesh on this side, the spirit warring at this side, and this is our reality. There's this difficulty inside of us where these two natures are going to war with one another. And what we see is in our actions, we kind of find out which one of those natures is winning the battle at the end of the day. If we're walking and seeing the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives, then the nature that is the Spirit inside of us is the one that's winning the battle. But if we're over here and we're seeing the the acts of the flesh well up inside of us and coming out in our actions, then we know that maybe the flesh is what is winning the battle Within us. The second thing that I want to remind us of is that transformation happens as we learn to abide in Jesus. We don't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and hit ourselves and buffet our body and all of those fun King James words and, and make ourselves <laughs> holy and good and loving. It doesn't happen by ourselves. It requires the spirit at work inside of us. As we remember Jesus, as we reflect on our great salvation, as we walk in his ways daily, that's how we enter the transformed life. It's abiding in Jesus day after day after day. And as we do that more and more, we become more like him. There are no shortcuts to the transformed life. I know we want like the ten easy steps right here, right now, but we don't get them. I'm sorry. It takes prolonged obedience in the same direction. And finally, the fruit of the Spirit is not a grab basket. It's not that with all sorts of fruit in it on the table and we can pick out the grapes that we like, and like, I do not want that kiwi at all, I'll leave that for someone else to do. That's not what the fruit of the Spirit are like. Each of them are working together to form in us what it looks like to follow after Jesus. We can't look and say, yeah, I'll have a bit of joy, and peace sounds nice, but patience? I don't know about that. I don't think I want any more of that, Lord. I'm good. Joy? Yep. Peace? Good. Patience? We'll leave that for the next guy. Okay. I think it's easy for us to want joy. I think it's easy for us to want peace. I think it's easy for us to want love. We see those things, but when we get to patience as that fourth one listed in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit, I I think, honestly, we scratch our heads a little bit. Like, the first three sound really spiritual, Like like love, joy, peace. Okay, I understand that, and then Paul just throws in that patience in there, and you're just like, okay, Paul, I don't really get this. And I love how Christopher Wright talks about it. He says, the first three items in Paul's fruit basket sound very spiritual, heavenly almost. Very nice for Sundays, but his next one, patience, it brings us back to earth on a Monday. Right? Love, joy, peace, those are the very spiritual things, like I'm blessed and highly favored. Like those things that we talk about often in our Christians' lives that that make sense. But then patience is like that that where the rubber meets the road, the difficulty in everyday life where we got to learn how to do this life that God has actually called us to do. Patience is that. And in me, I know that love, joy, peace, those are ones I'm like, yeah, those are real spiritual. I'm going to pray for those more and more. But patience and the difficulty of that is one I've experienced a lot in my life. Brooke and I used to live in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And if you know anything about the DFW Metroplexes, well, we got highways upon highways upon highways upon highways. And everyone drives about 87 miles an hour. And it's bumper to bumper. And you're going there. You're trying to get to work. I used to have a 32-mile commute every single day on four-lane highways with all the crazy people driving 80 miles an hour, putting on their makeup, eating their breakfast taco, and reading a book while sending a text at the same time. And you're just like, come on, guys. Like, we're just trying to get to work unscathed. And so you're doing that every day. I'm, that really didn't happen. I'd never saw someone, you know, eating a breakfast taco while putting on makeup. I did someone do a, see a, someone do a U turn on the middle of the interstate one time, which was terrifying. <laughs> I was just trying to find where I was in my notes. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> Boo. That was my former way of life, in the midst of the craziness, in the midst of all the driving around on four-lane highways with everyone doing crazy things. And then my commute now from Keysville to the church, well, I get the Osable Chasm, get to see the waterfalls, I look over, I see these beautiful mountains, a nice natural lake, and then I look down occasionally, and I see that I'm committing the cardinal sin of Texans. I'm going like 48 in a 55 the cardinal sin in texas is you got to go 10 miles an hour over at all times if that that's in the slow lane even but i'm here driving now and i'm going like 48 in the 55 I, I don't know what's wrong with me something has changed my overall environment has changed the inputs are leading to different outputs for me This is something that happens over time in our lives, and we can look and see that the environments that we put ourselves into, the type of things that are coming into us over and over and over again, ultimately reflect on what comes out of us. And that's what I'm hoping that we'll find today when we're talking about patients. Now, I will say that just because sometimes I go 48 in the 55 doesn't mean that I'm fully cured for my Texan-ness, because yesterday we were trying to drive up here. And I definitely did not get upset and impatient while driving. Okay, yeah, I flashed my lights at someone, okay? Just get off my back, okay? It hasn't been fully cured yet, but I'm working on it. So let's talk about patience. Let's talk about this idea, because this is probably the most important one of these nine fruit of the Spirit that I'm going to talk about. And you're like, Patience, yes, patience is the most important of the nine that we are going to talk about because it's the one that we so easily discount. Patience has less to do with our response to specific situations and more to do with our overall lifestyle. It's not us taking a deep breath and having to wait an extra three seconds because no one knows how to use the roundabout down there. That's not what patience is about. It's about us wholly reorienting our lives to be people who are fixated on the way of Jesus and living in this idea of living in eternity but living now. Living in eternity but living in it It's not something that's an inconsequential attribute. It's something like, yeah, I'm not patient, but that's okay because I know how to love and have joy and have peace. It's not something that's inconsequential. It's actually something that's essential to having a vibrant spiritual life. See, As Christians, we live currently in the midst of a society that uh, wants convenience at all costs. It wants everything fast, and it wants it right now, and it wants endless progress. And for us, we need to buck against that a bit. We need to learn to do life differently. Most of all, we need to reclaim a theology that recognizes the good of patience. And again, patience, yes, patience. I just, I'm you to stick with me through this. It's really important. I promise you'll get something out of it. If not, send me an email later. So let's do some history real quick. I promise I won't put any any of you to sleep. Um, There's this book, it's really wonderful that I'm reading right now, called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And in this book, uh, the historian Dr. Alan Kreider, he, he's talking all about the ideas of how the early church was formed in the first 300 years of its existence. Basically, what happened in those first 300 years that leads to us 2,000 years later, sitting in this building, talking about Jesus, proclaiming him as Lord? What happens during that time? And he, he notes this in the beginning of the book. He says, Christian writers called patience the highest virtue the greatest of all virtues, the virtue that was peculiarly Christian. He notes that early Christians believed that God is patient and that Jesus visibly embodied patience in his life. And they concluded that they, trusting in God, should be patient, not controlling events, not anxious or in a hurry, and never using force to achieve their end. Now this is something that requires us to have a reorientation because the early church was not a type of church that was flash in the pan like big thunder and lightning and all this and we're coming on the scene and we're taking over the world. That's not the way that the early church operated. The early church grew in number because they patiently followed after the way of Jesus in their everyday lives. They weren't trying to go 100 miles an hour at all times. They were slow and focused on holistic formation in the way of Jesus, knowing that this was the way that God had moved throughout all of salvation history and all of the Old Testament, how he moved in Jesus' life, and how he was going to continue to move here and now. I love this at, from Kreider. He goes on to say that the sources rarely indicate that early Christians grew in number because they won arguments. Instead, they grew because their habitual behavior, rooted in patience, was distinctive and intriguing. And that just kind of blows my mind because I did debate in high school. Like, I love winning arguments, and that's not how the early church grew. It didn't grow by winning all the arguments and having all the right answers at all the correct times. They grew by consistently and patiently walking in the way of Jesus in their everyday lives. So people could see what that looked like and then say, okay, who is this Jesus? Why are you so different? Why do you look on the face of those who accuse you and beat you and mock you and still show love for them? Why do you do that? That was what marked the early church. Patience was the hallmark of the early church. They weren't focused on bigger, better, faster, but were instead focused on becoming like Jesus and ensuring that this outflowed into their actions. They wanted everything about themselves to be reflections of who Jesus is. And this was the very thing that led to the organic growth of the church that literally changed the world and the reason that you and I are sitting here today. So let's define what we mean by patience and then turn our attention to our text. I know this is a longer introduction before we get to our text, but I think it's important for us to understand this so that we can better talk about this idea of patience. So the word patience in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 Um, it's a little bit different than how we would think of patience in in our world today. Um, It can also be literally translated as forbearance, which is what we see in the NIV, and then we also see it as long-suffering in the King James. Uh, Theologian Christopher Wright notes that it literally means, and I like this definition, long-tempered. It literally means long-tempered. And the Amplified Version, which usually has like all those fun brackets in it, I think in this case provides one of the most helpful notes on what patience actually is. So in Galatians 5.22, right after it lists patience, the Amplified Version tells us that patience is not the ability to wait, but how we act while waiting. Patience is not the ability to wait, but how we act while waiting. And this is important for us because patience is living in light of eternity here and now. It's evidence in us operating from our heavenly citizenship in the midst of the chaos of our present age. It's not here saying, come, Lord Jesus, I'm just going to wait and you know, hopefully things get better. It's saying that, no, I'm going to call out to Jesus, say, come, Lord Jesus, and I'm going to continue to follow you in my everyday life. I'm going to continue to operate in love and joy and peace and all those other fruit of the Spirit so that more and more people can see what you're about. It's about how we act in the waiting, not the waiting itself. You and I are people that should be eagerly awaiting the coming of the new age where heaven and earth meet. It should be something that we get excited about. It should be saying, Glory to God, hallelujah, amen, amen, right? Okay, there we go. It should be something that we get excited about. But too often we get so excited about that that we forget that we're also supposed to pray on, he- on earth as it is in heaven seeking to live out that life that Jesus called us to live, the one that's truly transformed, the one that seeks the highest good of all people. And so that's a big introduction into what we're talking about today, but it's an important one for a for us to be able to understand what patience really is. Because it's more about our actions in the world around us than it is about waiting in the grocery store, or at the turn signal, or at the stop sign, or or fill in the blank for wherever you're typically impatient. So with all that before us, let's now turn to our text. I'm going to reread 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17 for us this morning. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority Now, this may not be the typical passage that you would think of when we're talking about patience, but ultimately what Peter is doing here is putting forth what it looks like to be long-tempered in a world in chaos. He's showing us the practical nature of how we are to live, how are we to exude this patience that we're called to. And he begins this section by reminding us that we are foreigners and exiles. And this is a common thread throughout the New Testament to remind us who we really are. That we're not people of any other nationality or anything first, but rather we are foreigners and exiles first. Paul would put it uh, elsewhere that we are citizens of heaven in Philippians. And what this means is if we are foreigners in this current age, if we are exiles in this current age, then we are to live from our heavenly citizenship above everything else. Now that doesn't mean we renounce all of our earthly citizenships or or anything like that. That's not what I'm calling us to, but rather to remember what our primary citizenship is, and that is as citizens of heaven. Peter goes on to help us understand what he means by all of this by telling us that we're to abstain from sinful desires and to live good lives among people who believe differently, and even those who accuse us of wrongdoing. He wants us to remain focused on Jesus. In other words, this is what it looks like to be citizens of heaven. This is what it looks like to be foreigners and exiles, to abstain from all the sinful things of the world, and to live good lives that are focused on the way of Jesus. And I love that part from Peter about living such good lives among the pagans, because I think that is one of the key things that is here, because Peter ultimately is pointing that back to our missional calling, that we are to do good so that others may notice it and turn to God. We are to, to live in the way of Jesus so that people will see what it looks like to follow after Jesus. We are embodiments of what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. And people, when they look at us, should see something that's attractive to them. Something that's like, I want to know more about why this person is the way that they is. In a good way. Because sometimes, sometimes we can look at people and be like, why are you the way that you are? Right? And you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, come on. No. You don't know what I'm talking about. Sometimes I look at people like, why are you the way that you are? But then there are sometimes I look at people and I go, why are you the way that you are? What is different about you? Why do you reflect Jesus? Why do you have so much joy? Why do you have so much love? Why do you have so much peace? Why do you have so much patience that I don't seem to have? And those are the people that I want to learn more about. The ones that I want to see, how are you living your life? Because I need some more of that into my life. And that's what Peter is saying here, that as we live lives like that, as we exude the things of Jesus in a world that's even in chaos, even against us at times, those very people will see how we live and are going to be like, I want to know more about this Jesus. Tell me more about him. It's the same idea that Jesus puts forth in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.16 where he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Living these lives that are lived unto God so that others may see that and come to know him. And what's interesting both about Peter and Jesus in these two passages is they're talking about them in the midst of talking of persecution. Living for Jesus will cause others to come against us. It's going to happen. Our values at our core, are different than the values of the world. It's night and day, plain and simple. And we can talk about the definition of persecution another time, but the point is that when we follow Christ and do the things that Christ has called us to, it means that we're going to be at odds with the world more often than not. And we are to remain steadfast in those things. But we must also remember that the message of Scripture is not to war against the world, fighting fire with fire, but rather it's to introduce the world to Jesus by how we live for God. That's the important thing that we must remember, that we don't get persecuted and then we put on the boxing gloves and go to town, you know, right hook, left hook, that sort of fun thing. Instead, we patiently remain committed to the way of Jesus. We are to be people that set our eyes on Jesus, that emulate him, and pray that our living sacrifice might be effective in showing others life that is truly life. We don't tear down or yell or destroy or own or whatever term we want to use today. We patiently love through our embodied witness through our everyday actions to the world around us, without turning our eyes away from Jesus. We remain fixated on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we live this out in our daily lives so that people can see that this Jesus does mighty things. So I want to go back and do a little bit more history here. I want to go back about 1,800 years for us. The year was 256 AD, and you have a church leader by the name of Cyprian, uh, who's a leader in the North African church. And he's faced in 256 with a church and a world that are in chaos. You have uh, a global pandemic that's happening and you have a lot of persecution that's happening among the church. The pagan society around them were blaming the Christians for the pandemic that was happening, saying that the Christians aren't worshiping our gods, and they've angered the gods, and so therefore, the pandemic has come upon all of us. And in this moment, Christians are being treated harshly. They're being uh, sanctioned economically. They're having difficult in the workpla- difficulties in the workplace. They're having uh, persecution against them. They're being beaten. All of these things are, are happening. And Cyprian has a church that's kind of in chaos um, because you have people that are discouraged. And they've lost some hope, and they're looking around them, and they're, they're seeing the person who's persecuting them, and some of them are wanting revenge. Some of them are like, Surely this isn't the way that life is supposed to go for us. They were losing hope. They wanted to fight fire with fire. And Cyprian, seeing this, he addresses the church and encourages them by saying this. We're not philosophers in words, but in deeds. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. Cyprian was telling his church, you can't say one thing. You can't talk about the goodness of God. You can't talk about the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness. You can't talk about all of those things and have those things coming out of your mouth while also living another life. We don't speak great things, but we live them. We patiently exude the way of Jesus time and time and time again. And Cyprian's words so motivated the church that one of his biographers said, if the whole world could have seen Cyprian in that moment addressing the church, they all would have come to Jesus. Because Cyprian didn't just tell them to stay on course. He reminds them to go care for the sick, to love the poor, to go to those who are sick and dying and being thrown out into the streets and care for them. That is the way of Jesus. This is a consistent theme throughout the first 300 years of church history. Though Christians were in the minority, though they were subject to mistreatment, though they were subject to being misunderstood, they remained patient in their public witness, choosing to exemplify what it means to follow Christ by their actions, by seeking to display the fruit of the Spirit at all times. Let me put it in in another way for us. The early Christians weren't concerned about being treated fairly. They weren't concerned over arguing who was right and who was wrong. But instead, they were concerned about the way of Jesus being easily observed in their lives. They wanted to be people who looked like Jesus. They weren't trying to be the people on the highest mountain, yelling louder than everyone else. They wanted to patiently walk in the ways of Jesus, knowing that's what would transform the world around them. See, I think you and I, we need to realize that the world won't change overnight. Drastic change doesn't happen overnight, it doesn't happen by force, but it happens through this idea of a long obedience in the same direction, which is a phrase that uh, both Nietzsche and Eugene Peterson made popular. It happens through a long obedience in the same direction. That's patience embodied, living the way of Jesus throughout our lives. So you and I and what Peter calls us to is to be meek people who seek the highest good in every situation. This is what it looks like to be people who submit ourselves for the Lord's sake in this world. That means we got to turn off the outrage box. we got to unsubscribe from worldviews that seem to form us in ways other than the way of Jesus. We must put our eyes upon Jesus and look to walk in his ways. I want to read verse 15 through 17 again. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Now, there's a phrase in here that I'm sure we all love, ignorant talk from foolish people. And I've certainly heard my share of that in my life, and I'm sure you have too. Uh, But the question that we must ultimately answer is how are we inclined to respond when we hear that? Are we inclined to respond by tearing them down and be like, no, 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 no. Or are we inclined to patiently show them love and kindness and joy, even though foolish talk from ignorant people? Peter reveals that as we continue to do good, we will silence those that do such a thing. That as we walk in the way of Jesus, eventually they just go blue in the face and they're like, okay, fine, I I see that I can't win, so I must change my tactic. And so the world around us, They may call us hateful. They may call us bigoted. They may call us backwards or even Neanderthals. So what? Let them call their names. As the saying goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words live with me forever. Wait, no, sorry. That's the wrong one. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Let them pile on the words. Let them pile on the insults. Let's remain fixed on Jesus. Now, what we can't do, what we cannot afford to do the very thing that we must not do. This is important. That's why I'm trying to emphasize it. We can't give people who are against us a reason to be correct about us. They're going to be against us because of the values that we hold, the way of Jesus that we cling to, the things of God but what we cannot do is give them a reason to be correct about us. Let them fling insults that are incorrect, but don't let them say anything that is true. We stand firm in our moral reasoning, but we stand equally firm in our loving demeanor towards all people. We're not people who tear apart and rip others up. We are people that build up. This is why it's so key to being formed in the way of Jesus. Not in the ways of a news personality or a politician or a shadowy internet figure. We must be formed in the way of Jesus. He is the one who leads us and guides us. And we must be people who stand firm in his ways. Seeking to patiently walk in all of his ways in the midst of a world that is unhinged. The hour is too late. Power is far too late for us to abandon the way of Jesus and seek to gain ground another way. When part of my reading this week, I came across this this passage from Tertullian. Uh, He's an early church guy a little bit before Cyprian in the early 200s. And he's writing this uh, apology talking about the ways of the church and the ways of Christians. And he gets to this one part that just kind of stopped me in my tracks. He he came to a part and says one of the things that we do as Christians is we pray for the, the end times to not come quickly. And that just stopped me in my tracks because it's so contrary to how we think in our world. Because we think, come Lord Jesus, come as quickly as possible, please rescue me out of this place. But for the early church, it was flipped on its head. They said, Lord, please put off coming back. Please wait, because the world doesn't yet know you. We want more people to come to you. The hour is too late for us to abandon that line of reasoning, for us to seek to gain ground in any other way. It's offensive to the cross of Jesus to do so, and at the end of the day, it simply doesn't work. Peter, in this section, he ends with a reminder for us to live as God's slaves, to abdicate our rights and to live fully, for God To walk in the ways of Jesus by showing respect to all people, loving those within the church, fearing God, and yes, even honoring the emperor. When Jesus is Lord, it affects how we interact with all people because we're operating from a different framework. We're operating from the framework that everyone is created in the image of God, that Jesus died for them, and that they are redeemable. It shapes how we live in the world. Even if we don't like them, even if they treat us poorly, yes, we are still to walk in those ways. Fun fact, the emperor that Peter is talking about there isn't a great emperor. He's a a little guy by the name of Nero. And Peter still says to honor but if that's not enough for us, if that doesn't help us see what this long-tempered obedience look like, looks like, Peter even takes it a step further and speaks into a situation that most of us can't imagine. And so I want us to look at 1 Peter 2:18 through 20 again. Because Peter clues us into how we are to walk by talking to people who are in slavery that have become followers of Jesus. And I think this is something we need to listen closely to, because I think it rocks our world when we truly understand the implications of what Peter's saying. He says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And I like to think this is Peter just silencing all the yeah, but arguments. Love, honor, Do all those things, yeah, but what about stay on the straight and narrow? He's speaking to one of the most difficult situations imaginable. It's a slave who's being mistreated by their master. They didn't deserve it. It wasn't something that they they did wrong and they, they were subject to mistreatment because of that and subject to punishment. They were doing the right thing. They were living life the way that they should, and yet they're being beaten and mistreated. And yet in this situation, Peter calls them to the same type of long-tempered living. He calls them to endure, to stay the course, to reflect the way of Jesus, so that maybe, just maybe, this person could see Jesus as well. Even someone so vile as them, maybe they could see Jesus. And I think this type of patience is the one that many of us struggle with today. The type of patience that that tells us to remain steadfast in the midst of difficulty. To remain steadfast in the midst of mistreatment. To remain steadfast in the midst of all the things that are going wrong around us. But for Peter, patient, long-tempered living, no matter the circumstance, is a key characteristic for Christians. It's necessary for who we are if we're to follow Christ the way that we're called to do. This passage finds its root in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It's a common message that's repeated throughout Scripture over and over and over again. It's patient, long-tempered living. And loving our enemies is made possible only by the Spirit working within us. It's against our fleshly nature to do this. But when we are conscious of God, as Peter says, the one who forgave us despite our many sins, then we can love as he loved. Then we can do as he did. Our ability to be long-tempered is evidence that we have been profoundly transformed by the gospel and that the Spirit is alive within us. If we're living this type of life, it's evidence that we are living the transformed life, that the gospel has truly gotten hold of us, that Jesus has truly gotten hold of us. The end of verse 20, Peter says, If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it's commendable before God. That word that gets translated to endure, and the reason that we're talking about this this morning, it's a synonym for uh, the word patience in Greek that we see in Galatians 5. To endure is to be patient. The word literally means to patiently endure, to persevere under misfortunes and trials, and to hold fast to one's faith in The beauty of this type of patience is that Peter says it's commendable before God. It's the same idea that that Paul puts forth in Romans 12 of our bodies being living sacrifices. We are not our own. We belong to the Lord. And at the end of the day, we are to do good by being long-tempered. Having our whole selves transformed by Christ and living out this transformed life in all situations all situations, even and especially the ones in which it's very difficult to do that. So I want to wrap up. Let's read again First Peter 2, 21 through 25, and just briefly talk about this. This is, this is the good part here. All of it's good, but this is the one that just kind of puts the nail in the coffin for us. Peter says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here Peter brings everything back to Jesus. As to this, you were called." He's pointing us back to Jesus, reminding us of the foundation, the cornerstone of why we do these things, why we're called to long-tempered living. He, call, he tells us that we're called to this because of Jesus. He writes that Jesus is an example. That we should walk in his ways. And I love that word example when it's referring to Jesus. It's the only time that particular word is used in the New Testament. And, and that word literally refers to an alphabet that's used as uh, something to copy. It's a document that's given to children to help them learn the alphabet. And that's what Peter uses for Jesus. He says, This is the example. This Jesus, the one who lived life that's truly life, who lived the perfect life, who exuded patient living, who exuded long-tempered living, he is your example. He is the one that you need to get out and you need to start tracing those letters and figuring out how to live life the way that he lived. it. Jesus is the example. Just like we learn the alphabet by looking at the letters and practicing them, We do the same with life that's truly life, with the life that Jesus has called us to. We look at Jesus, we look at his ways, and we put them into practice. And over time, we figure it out more and more and more. You and I need to remember that Jesus' life wasn't just to save us in eternity. It's not just a status symbol for us, yep, I'm saved. I've done that. I prayed the prayer, I'm in to heaven. That's not all Jesus did for us. He also died on the cross, was resurrected, so that we would be transformed. So that here and now, we would be transformed into people who look like Jesus. And Peter wraps up all of this by reminding us of Jesus' passion reminding us of Jesus' example as he's being crucified. He reminds us that Jesus was sinless, but he was one that was condemned to death. He had done no wrong, but he's being crucified as a criminal. The king of heaven, the king of earth, the one by whom all things were created, is being humiliated. Suffering the worst kind of death. He's being slapped, he's being beaten, spit on, reviled by all who pass him by. And Jesus doesn't call down a legion of angels. He doesn't say, oh, you're about to get what's coming to you. He looks upon the ones who are killing him and he prays for them. With their salvation in his mind, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That is the example of Jesus. He could have called down fire. He could have called down a legion of angels to rescue him and strike his executioners dead. But that's not what he does. His desire is for them for them to know life that's truly life, to know the life that he has for them. And even those who are doing these things to him, he's bearing their sins upon the cross. The sins that they're committing against him right then, he's literally bearing those upon the cross. He was purchasing all of that for them and for us, and so he endured. He bore your sin upon the cross. All those times you've sinned against God, all the things that you've done that flies in the face of the way that God has, he bore those sins himself upon the cross so that you and I could be free. So that you and I could be redeemed and reconciled. He loves you. All our sin, our lust, our pride, our greed, our hate, our judgment, all of that nailed upon Jesus. Every sin we've committed laid upon the sinless one. The only one worthy, the only one who had lived life perfectly. All of that laid upon him to purchase our forgiveness. To purchase our freedom from sin. To purchase our empowerment to live life that is truly life. That is what Jesus has done. And it's something that we must never forget. By trusting in Christ, all of that is ours. New life. New creation. Reconciled to the Father co-heirs with Christ. All of that is ours. Life to the full is ours because of Jesus. And I love verse 25 here because Peter just sums it up so wonderfully for us. He says, for Christians, though we were once like sheep going astray, Though we were once going in our own direction and following whatever leader comes in front of us, that is no more. We are now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. We've come to the one who leads us and guides us to life that's truly life. He set before us the example, and now we are to walk in his ways. He's shepherding us. He's overseeing us. He's leading us to life that's truly life. We must now surrender everything at his feet. Because when we come to Christ, life ceases to be about us, it ceases to be about our rights and our vengeance and our desires, and all of that. And it becomes fully about Jesus. He is the shepherd. He is the overseer. And because of what he's done, we're no longer wandering on our own, trying to figure out what life is supposed to look like. We now have an example in Jesus who leads us, who empowers us. He shows us the long-tempered life, the patient life, And so let's be people who follow his example. Let's lay ourselves down. Let's lay our desire down and become slaves of God. Fully devoted to the ways of Jesus. Let's make that our aim. Let's make that our highest good. Let's be people who patiently endure all things. People who are long-tempered. People who are committed to the way of Jesus, who have been transformed by Jesus, and by doing that, living that kind of life, showing others that Jesus is worth it. That he is good and kind and loving and the one that they truly desire, even though they don't know it yet. Let's patiently live this life. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you. How we could just sit here and say thank you over and over and over and over again. Our sin, our shame, our scorn, all that we deserved was laid upon Jesus. He died so that we could live, so that we could have freedom, so that we could be reconciled to God, welcomed into the family of God. No longer enemies, but now friends and children. No longer walking on our own, but now redeemed. Father, I pray that you would Remind us of the life that Jesus lived. A life that exuded patience, a life that exuded long-tempered living, even upon the cross. Even as he looked upon those who were murdering him, praying to the good Father to forgive them. Help us to become like Jesus. God, let your spirit well up inside of us more and more. Help us to surrender, to become slaves to you. how we desire you. Move in us. In Christ's name.